Amen. You may be seated. Welcome. It's great to see all of you this morning. And uh, yeah, it's great to have Elena back with us as she's in town, as she's uh, once again, one of her songs is being, being uh, recommended for the, the GCU Canyon Worship album. And so it's so good to have Elena with us as uh, she's like part of our family in so many ways. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible in front of you, and you can find the uh, ninth chapter of Isaiah on page 536. The title of the message today is Hope in a Child. Back in 2016... Texas Christian University was playing Oregon, the Oregon Ducks, in the Alamo Bowl in San Antonio, Texas. Texas Christian, or TCU as it was known, was playing shorthanded. Their quarterback had gotten into a fight a couple nights earlier in a bar. Not a great place for a quarterback to be, especially during a bowl game, but he got in a fight and he was suspended. So TCU was down already as they went into this game. Well, the first half it was not a pretty picture as Oregon went up 31 to nothing. And you can just imagine what it was like for the team, how, de- how just hopeless it must have felt for the fans as they're watching this. I mean, how many of them left the stadium, went down to the Riverwalk, or how many of them would have just turned off the TV because it's like, what do you do with this? Our quarterback is gone. We're down five scores. It's 31 to nothing. But that was a football game with zero eternal value. Forgive me for you football fans. It doesn't even come close to the hopelessness that was facing those in 733 B.C. and the darkness that was in the land that pervaded the land at the time of Isaiah. A little background on, on this text It was 733 B.C. Ahaz was the king of Judah. I talked about this last week. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. The the kingdom had been divided back right after the time of Solomon where Jeroboam and Rehoboam had split the, the kingdom. Hosea was the king of Israel at the time in the north. Assyria was the bully on the block, terrorizing everybody. Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah were prophets at the time. They were contemporaries. In fact, in Isaiah 8, it tells us it was a very dark time. Notice what it says in verse 20 of chapter 8. It says, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. There is no dawn. When there's no dawn, it's dark. There's, There's no light. And it's because they weren't listening and they weren't speaking God's word. Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and whom? Their God. And turn their faces upwards, verse 22, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It was a dark time. God's people, instead of inquiring of God, they went to mediums and fortune tellers and the dead for wisdom. We see that in the earlier verses. 
people had rejected God and sin was rampant. There was no dawn. The land was greatly distressed. It was, it was a time of hunger, meaning a hunger for the word of God. There was no word of God at the time. There was a lot of self-talk and gloom. Some of you may have walked in here today feeling just that. Darkness, gloom, hopelessness. Kind of like the halftime of the TCU game. It's like, where do we go? No real hope. But Isaiah wants us to look beyond our present circumstances. He wants us to look beyond the darkness to the light that would come. He's pointing us to the first advent. And he reminds us that our hope is not in our circumstances. It's not in our finances. It's it's not in what people think of us or the number of likes that we get. He wants us to know that our hope is in a child. A child who is to come. The promised Messiah. And we see that laid out for us in Isaiah chapter 9. Read along, or follow along as I read this. Verse 9, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has shown, has light shown. You have multiplied the nations. Now, when he says you, he is speaking now towards God. He says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping uh, warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah, in the midst of all of the darkness, challenges the people to look beyond the darkness to the hope that would come. Let me just say this. Some of us are facing today deep darkness The hope has come, and the hope is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. And we need to look beyond our circumstances to this promised Messiah, the one who has come and has lived and has died and has been raised. So what do we learn about this child? First of all, this child is your light in the darkness. He is your light in the darkness. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the, uh, the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, when he speaks of Zebulun and Naphtali, he's speaking of two of the 12 tribes. 
They're actually in the northwest portion of what is today known as Israel. They've been decimated because of the Assyrian invasion. Now, when you look at that region of Israel, any, any invasion from the north, they would always be the first to be run over. In fact, it reminds me of Moldova. We'd had the opportunity to plant a church in Moldova in Eastern Europe about 10 years ago. And, and it's right on the border. It's right on the, on the western border of Russia. So anytime Russia would move into Eastern Europe to conquer it, Moldova was like the doormat. And if you have a doormat going into your home, what do you do with the doormat? You wipe your feet on it, and you just walk right past it. That's kind of ha what happened every time there would be an invasion from the north for Zebulun and Naphtali. And notice it says here, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, a dark time. But notice he says, but in the latter time, looking towards the future, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and the Galilee. Isaiah is promising a time of better days. Even though today looks like all is lost, in the latter time he is made glorious. And look what he says in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness... Past tense. I've seen a great light. He's speaking as if it's already happened. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has shone a light. Even though it speaks of the birth of Christ 730 years in the future, Isaiah sees it as if it has already happened. That is the beauty of the prophecies of the, of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He describes the world into which Jesus was born in actuality. This, this speaks of what it was like for Jesus when he would come into this world. It was a time of darkness, a time of anguish, a time of devastation and bondage. And, and Jesus actually quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Let me put it up on the screen for you because I think it's good for us just to see this. Jesus says, the land of Ze or Matthew says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, what he's speaking about here when Matthew quotes this is when Jesus goes up to Capernaum to initiate, to launch his ministry. And he says, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He's saying, this place of deep darkness, Naphtali, Zebulun, that had been devastated, they were the first on which the light of Christ was shown. That's God's grace. Sometimes it is when we are in, our, in the deepest, darkest times that God's going to use us to light the brightest light. This was the time when he proclaimed the, the kingdom of God was coming. So Isaiah looks forward 730 years to this area that had been decimated, and he says, listen, to you, the light is going to shine. 
God was promising an end to the darkness. And even though his people had been faithless, God is always faithful. And God called them to return and to repent. Listen, Jesus never forgets his people. His grace never lets go. And sometimes we can feel like, I think I've gotten to this point of no return. How could God really love me? And the fact is, because we're trying to put God into our box, but that's not our God. Our God is loving and gracious. Now, notice what it says here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The word light, it's synonymous for, God, for God's presence. It's synonymous for hope, for what is good. It is God's light that led the nation of Israel out of bondage. and We see that in Exodus. Yet darkness is a symbol for sin, for lostness and death. That's why Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 8, verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. Those that follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's very clear. Those that follow me, that spend time with me, will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. And this is the light that has come into the world. This is the light that Isaiah is speaking about. The promised light. He was a sign of hope and deliverance from the darkness of the land. And the fact is today, we can look around and think, we are living in a time of darkness, and we are. But Jesus is the light that has been given to us, and we are to reflect that light to those around us. Let me just say this. So often, all we can do is see the darkness that is enveloping us. But what we need to do is get back and kind of get reignited. It's, it's like what, what Paul said to Timothy. He says, fan into flame the faith that is in you. Be a light and start lighting other people. In fact, Christmas Eve service, we're going we're gonna to have a candlelight service. And, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna light a candle and we're going to have you light the person next to you. And, and that's a picture of what we should be as Christians. The fact that we should be, light, we should be a light to those around us. We should be reflecting the light. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reminding them that even though this is a dark time, a light is coming into the world. It will be a child. The child is your light in the darkness, but we also learn that this child is your joy in the gloom. This child is your joy in the gloom. Let me ask you, have you lost your joy? Have you found yourself to be without joy? Isaiah is telling us joy is coming. Joy is here. Now, what we see in verse 3, we see the word or a, a root for the word joy three different times. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, uh, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Who is causing this joy? God is. He's saying, you, you have multiplied the nation. It's a reminder back of the uh, Abrahamic covenant where God said to Abraham that, that, that through you, through your seed, you will, you will, you will have a great nation as, as the stars of the sky. But here, he's saying that in the middle of this gloom, there was one coming to set the captives free. 
He says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. What kind of joy? He says, joy as if there's just been a great harvest. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up around farm country, but after the harvest is in, people are very excited. It's like, man, this is, this is great. We got another harvest in. The weather didn't hold us back. Or, or as they are glad when they divide the spoil, like there's been this great victory, and now we get to divide this, the, the spoil. There's this great joy that is coming. And then he says, why? You can see the word for in verse 4. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. When he uses those words, yoke and staff and rod, those are instruments of oppression from a conquering uh, nation. But the nation of Israel must have been saying, how can that be? How can a small little nation like ours defeat a big bully like Assyria? Fast forward 700 years, and, and, and the people that were living in, in, in the time of Jesus, they would have said, how can a small little country like ours defeat the Roman Empire? It would be a supernatural work of God, as in the days of Midian. And some of you are thinking, Midian, Midian, I know, wh where do I remember Midian? You go back to Judges chapter 6 and 7. Midian was a nation that had conquered Israel. They were, they were eating all of their crops. And we come to this guy named Gideon. Remember Gideon? And it says that he's threshing wheat in the, in the wine press. Why was he doing it in the wine press? So, so, so the Midianites would not steal his wheat because they needed to eat. And, and God comes to him and says, Greetings, O man of God. And then like Gideon's like, what? Who are you talking to? And he says, I want you to defeat the Midianites. And, and, and Gideon's like, you got the wrong dude, Lord. And he says, well, I'm going to give you an army. He starts with 32,000 people, but God says, that's too many. Whittles it down to 10,000. And then from 10,000, he whittles it down to 300 people. And then instead of giving him great military instruments, they take pots and their voices and broken and, and, just, just, and, 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 and musical instruments. And they shout. And, and, and they defeat the Midianites. And let me ask you, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. See, God wants to use the weak to confound the wise. And... and, and and the fact is, we realize, that, is there anything too difficult for God? No. God would send Jesus into the world as a child. He would bring joy in the midst of the gloom. He would defeat the enemy. How? As in the days of Midian. It would be a supernatural event. That's what he's trying to tell us. See, what we do is we look at our circumstances from a humanistic point of view. And God wants us to look at it from a biblical point of view, from a sovereign God point of view. Is nothing too hard for God? This child is your gloom. 
excuse me, this child is your joy in the gloom. He is, a, he is your light. <laughs> he is not a gloomy child, let me tell you. Do not walk away with, with that thought. He's your light in the darkness. But third, he's your peace in the storm. Now we get to verse 6. It's the climax of the prophecy. This child would be the source of light and joy for those that turn to him. He uses two emphatic nouns in verse 6. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Child and son are those nouns. A child is born. A son is given. Now notice a child. He, he, is, he is born. It speaks of his humanity. He was born of a virgin. We saw that last week from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. It was a supernatural event. Remember, he, uh, she was a, Mary was a virgin. And the child was conceived of the Holy Spirit, showing that he was fully man and fully God. But we see that picture again here where he says that a child is born. That's his humanity, but a son is given. That is his deity. It's given. There was nothing that Mary did to warrant to have this child other than be a vessel of the Lord. A son was given. Ray Ortland says this about this verse. I'll put it on the screen. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. I love that. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by, the, by coming to them, by them he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. When we celebrate Christmas, we're not just celebrating the birth of a child. We're celebrating the birth of our Savior, of the promised Messiah. The Son will be born to the nation of Israel he is the promised son of David. He will be given. This is the seed of the woman that was spoken about back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is the one that, 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 that Joseph was told, you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. Think about this. It's kind of like what Ray Ortland says. God's answer to everything wrong in this world is a child. This is a child that will rule and reign. Notice what it says. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He will rule and reign. No matter what you think of our government, at the end of the day, they are nothing compared to the ruling and reigning of God. Currently, he is the one that reigns from above, that he will come again and rule and reign on this earth. Now, in verse 6, we get a fourfold picture of Jesus' name, and each one of these names is a reminder of who he is. Let's go through those. First of all, he says, Wonderful Counselor, 
It tells us that he is the counselor with the wisdom you need. His name is a reminder that he is the counselor with the wisdom that you need. People go to all the wrong places for wisdom. Let me ask you, where do you go for wisdom? The culture? The news? Family, friends, self-help books? Google? Facebook? Let me tell you. Bad places for wisdom. But we are given a child who is a wonderful counselor. He has all we need for life and godliness. He is the one that created us and sustains us. He is the one whose counsel is sufficient for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3 tells us. Yet so many go, uh, so many living in darkness go to the shifting sands of man's wisdom. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, let me put it on the screen. He says this, Paul says to Timothy, or Paul says to the church in Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's very easy to get caught up in the ways of the world, but a child has been given, and he is wonderful counselor. And often, instead of going to the great counselor, people will develop coping mechanisms. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be people-pleasing, it could be putting a pretend face on social media, it could just be keeping people at arm's length. But the fact is, to us, a son is given. He is the counselor that you need. Let me ask you, do you go to him? Do you go to his word? And it's a reminder not just to be a hearer of his word, but what? A doer of his word. Look what, math, look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 11. I quote this verse a lot. In fact, David and I, David recommended this book. I'm reading it now, and it's, it's by a guy named Dane Ortland, and it's, it's called, um, David, help me, Gentle and Lowly, but it's about the heart of Jesus, and this speaks of his heart right here. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He says, come to me, come to me. Don't don't go anywhere else, just come to me. No matter what's going on in your life, he's saying, come to me. And I will give you rest. And in that rest is peace. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That's the heart of our Lord. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me tell you something. So often we go to all the wrong places to unburden ourselves. Go to the Lord. He's gentle and lowly. Ask him. Abide in him. So not only is his name a reminder that he's the counselor that you need, but secondly, he's the God whose power you need. He's the God whose power you need. He says he's he's not only the wonderful counselor, but he's a mighty God. And and when it says mighty, there's undertones of this uh, heroic and victorious person. 
this heroic and victorious God. In fact, we see that in verse 4 again. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken us on the day of Midian. God is all-powerful. There is nothing too great for God. He is the power that you need. Like he did in the day of Gideon, this child is the mighty God who has the power to save people through their weakness. And that's why it's like, don't try to be strong in the face of God. Surrender. Give yourself to him. The problem is it's counterintuitive. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, it is when we are weak, then we are made strong. It's a great place to be. How many besides me struggle with just being weak in our own flesh, or at least admitting it? But he says, come to me. He has the power that we need. Jesus gives us a picture of that. He didn't come as a conquering king, but he came as a humble servant, and he laid his life down on the cross for us. He, he laid himself down. He died in our place, a sacrificial death. He took the wrath that we deserve so we could have eternal life. And he was raised on the third day. The fact is, it is by doing that that he breaks the shackles that keep us in bondage. He has the power you need for victorious life. Isaiah is looking forward to the day when the Savior would come and free us from guilt and shame and sin. And the fact is, we can rejoice because this child has come in the fulfillment of that promise. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Not only is he the God whose power you need and the counselor whose wisdom you need, but third, he is the father whose love you need. He's the father whose love you need. He is everlasting Father, the one who adopts us into his family. The Bible is so clear that, that when we surrender to him, when we turn from our sins and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior, he adopts us. And because he has adopted us, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. I don't know about you, but that's good news. There is nothing I can do as a believer in Jesus Christ that would separate me from the love of God. There's nothing you can do as a believer in Jesus Christ that would separate you from his love. The fact is, before you were in Christ, you were far off. But now that you're in Christ, and I pray that you are, I pray that you've, you've turned from your sin and you've received him. Now that you're in Christ, you have been brought near and we see the depth of his love by dying on the cross in our place. Romans 5.8 says that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A son is given. He gave his only son. Why? Because he loved the world. He's an everlasting father. Now we've all had in, we all have imperfect fathers. None of us have perfect fathers. Some of us have had really imperfect fathers. Some of us have had 
absentee fathers. But God the Father is a father who's perfect in every way. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you and he cares for you deeply. His love is without end. That's what it means, everlasting. His love is without condition. And you're thinking, what about when I sin? He still loves you. What about when I blow it? He still loves you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Just go and read. Don't do it right now, but... Luke chapter 15, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. We see there's two sons. One of the sons says, Father, give me all of my inheritance. And the father gives it to him. And he, he goes out and he has a big time. He goes, to, he goes to Old Town Scottsdale and lives it up. He uses up all of his money and he finds himself in a gutter. And he gets to the end of himself, it says, and he says, I will go back to my father. And his father is waiting for him to return, and he sees him far off. And his father runs to him. That's a picture of God, our God, God the Father, running to us when we're willing to turn back to him. That is our loving father. Let me ask you, have you been adopted into his family because you've, you've turned from your sin and, and received Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in the person and work of Jesus, the work that he accomplished on the cross? Listen, in Christ, you are loved, period. He's the Father whose love you need. And fourth... He is the Christ whose peace you need. He is the Christ whose peace you need. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. People look for peace in all the wrong places. The Bible tells us that our sin has separated us from God. That we are actually at enmity with God. We are at war with God. Now, some people say, well, I don't feel like it was a war with God. But the fact is, we are. Now, peace does not come through a military victory. It doesn't come through peace treaties. It doesn't come from a, I know, newsflash, it doesn't come from a political party winning an election. History tells us that peace treaties are temporary, and eventually they're broken. But there's one lasting peace, and that is the peace of God that comes from the God of peace, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. There is no other peace that lasts other than the peace of Christ. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And there is no end to this peace. Notice what it says in verse 7. Of the increase of his government, of his increase of his ruling and reigning, and of peace, there is no end. So the real war isn't out around us. 
The real war is here in our hearts. And it is surrendering to this child, the Messiah who has come, the Prince of Peace, knowing that the only true peace comes from him. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, even talks about how we can have that peace. Let me put it up on the screen. Great text. But he was pierced for our transgressions. This is 700 years before Christ. This is 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. If you, that's a bad way of calling it. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What's that saying? That Jesus, when he was on the cross, he took the, the penalty for our sin, the chastisement that we deserved. And, 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 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about the fact that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls that the great exchange. So in that moment, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Our peace is through Jesus laying down on the cross, taking the penalty that we deserved. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm telling you, when we think about Jesus Christ and what he's done, just by looking at that passage, our lives for, should be forever changed. God, forgive me for my complaining. But my life, the way I've lived my life is what has caused the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In fact, Notice what Jesus says in, in John chapter 14. He says this in John 14, 22. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then he clarifies it. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. His peace is a whole different type of peace. See, we're looking for peace in all the wrong places. Notice what he says in John 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you, and we're going to be getting there once we start back into John. I, I can't wait to get to John chapter 14, 15, and 16. It's a, it's a beautiful theology of the, of the Holy Spirit. But he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In Jesus you're going to have peace. Well, what about the world? He says, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's, he's reminding us to change our thinking, to take it away from the things of the world, and to put it back on Jesus. And that's what Isaiah is trying to remind us here is, listen, we live in a dark, gloomy world, but look beyond the darkness to me. Look beyond the darkness to Jesus Christ. He is the one that gives us peace. Isaiah prophesied that a child would come, and a child did come. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore. And he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, did he do it? Well, we know that he did. So let's turn to Luke chapter 2 real quick. And Luke chapter 2, the third of the four Gospels. Let's just look quickly at the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, we see the, the, the requirements for, for uh, Mary and Joseph to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. We'll, 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 we'll look more in depth at that on Christmas Eve. And we see in verse 7 that Mary gave birth to this child. In verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's amazing that the shepherds would be the first to hear of the coming of Christ because the shepherds were considered the lowest of low. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That would have been an amazing night. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He says, for unto you. In Isaiah, it says, for unto us. But here he says, for unto you. For unto you. A child is born. The hope of the world is born to you. This is good news. This is great news. This is, this is news of great joy for all the people. Verse 12, and this will be the sign uh, for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, this is where all heaven breaks loose. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The only peace that changes our lives. Our hope is found in the child. He is the good news who brings great joy to all people. And most importantly, he is the good news that brings great joy to you. So where it says here, for to you is born this David. This, this day in the city of David. Put your name in there. Put your name in there. For to you, for to you, Kyle, for to you, Becca, for to you, David, this is a personal God, a loving God who sent his son for you. Listen, Jesus is your light in the darkness. He is your joy in the gloom. He is your peace in the storm. And he is your hope for eternity. And it is because of this child that we have the ability to have eternal life by trusting, putting our faith in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in him? Remember I started this message talking to you about the Alamo Bowl. TCU was up 31 to nothing at halftime. Hopeless? Certainly seems so. But in the second half, TCU scored 28 unanswered points with their second string quarterback. And probably the stadium half full. And with 19 seconds left, TCU lines up to kick a field goal to tie it, and they get the field goal. And then, hold your applause, 
I know this is exciting, but not as exciting as the child to come, who's come. And then in the third overtime, TCU beats Oregon. It was amazing. You can imagine the people going wild for that. Who would have thought? What a reversal of fortunes. That was a football game with no eternal value. How much more should we celebrate the birth of Christ? An eternal reversal of fortunes. We're out of darkness, light. We're out of gloom, joy. We're out of the storm, peace. We're out of hopelessness, hope. This was all the result of the promise of a child during a time of great darkness and great distress. When the prophet told the people, look beyond the darkness to a time of great light. Look for your hope in a child, the first advent. This was all fulfilled 700 years later at the birth of Jesus Christ. But today, we are living in a time of darkness, and we are told to look beyond this time of darkness to the return of Christ, because Jesus is coming again soon, the second advent. No wonder the, the angels saying at the end of this passage, he says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Our Savior has come. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up as we close out the service. I think this passage, for many of us, is a reminder to put our eyes, to put our focus back on Jesus. Some of us may have to ask God for forgiveness just for the fact that we've put our focus in all the wrong places. More often than not, we put our focus on self. Yet Jesus says, look beyond the darkness. Look beyond the gloom. Look beyond the distress to the light that will come. And then let that light reflect off of you. Be a light to others around you. Hope has come. A child has been born. A son has been given. And his name is what? Jesus. Father, thank you for the reminder of our hope, our hope in a child, the one who came, who lived, who died, was raised so we could have eternal life. I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that today they would, in humility, confess that they're a sinner and that they're in need of a Savior, and they would surrender their life to you. And I pray if there's those here today that maybe have gotten away from you, that have gotten away from your goodness and your grace and your love and your joy, that they would confess that right now. And they would commit to reflect the light that you have given them, Lord. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is our hope. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.